Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Mulford, and this is Trium Connects, a new podcast for the Trium community. Are we merely trustees of the planet that we inherit, or is it ours that we can use and destroy at our will? That's a fundamental normative question that affects how we value future costs. There was a long-standing religious and humanist argument against slavery, but it only became possible to gather a big movement behind this cause when the economic rationale for slavery disappeared. And I think something similar is happening with climate change. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 7 of Triumph Connects. Just a quick reminder that if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating, subscribe, and or share us with your friends. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Robert Faulkner. For those of you in Triumph, you'll know Robert as the Academic Director of the Triumph Program at the LSE. In addition to his role in Triumph at the LSE, Robert is also an Associate Professor of International Relations and the Research Director of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. Prior to joining the LSE, Robert had academic positions at the Universities of Oxford, Kent, and Essex, and was a visiting scholar at Harvard University. Robert was born in Germany, and he read for a double degree in politics and economics at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich. And I have to tell you that I knew Robert for years before I really understood that he was not British. As you will soon hear, his English is much better and more refined than my own, which as a native speaker is, I guess, somewhat uh, depressing. Perhaps his eloquence in English is the consequence of studying many years at Oxford University in Nuffield College for a PhD in international relations. That said, I suspect that I could study twice as long and not sound half as good. Robert is one of the world's authorities on the evolution of climate change policy and law at the international level. We start our conversation here with a discussion of when and how notions of fairness and justice helped to shape the framework of international climate agreements compared to when more traditional concepts of state self-interest tend to be a better explanation for state behavior in this space. Next, we explore how re-engagement by the U.S. under a Biden administration may impact international climate policies and politics. We also discuss China's increasing role in climate politics, both in the Paris Treaty, but beyond, including its very aggressive domestic targets. We then turn to look at the role of business, and like at the beginning, we take on this dichotomy between the role of business being pushed by normative concerns versus either narrow or long-term self-interest as drivers of change. Finally, we conclude our discussion with the role of business schools, and particularly EMBAs like Trium, what role do these programs play in this context? What ought they be teaching in the context of the ongoing climate crisis? Like many of my guests, Robert's deep knowledge of the topics we discuss allows him to perceive patterns and trends across time in a way that is just frankly missing from more shallow analyses that you may often hear in other places. I hope you enjoy our discussion as much as I did. And now, without any further ado, I bring you Robert Faulkner. Robert Faulkner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's fantastic. You know, there's some continuity here. Andrew Walter was on last episode. Yeah, I heard the episode. Yeah, and Andrew was in the Department of International Relations at the LSE, and he was Triumph's London-based academic director. And you took over for him, gosh, Robert, how many years has it been now? Oh, it's eight years now. Eight um, years. Andrew handed over the baton in 2012. And wow. I learned a great deal from him. He was a fantastic academic director, and, and I've tried to keep to his standard. Well, I think you've both been wonderful. And uh, I'm really happy that the academic director is still from international relations at LSE. I mean, the management department is fantastic, and we get great people from the management department, but I think that it's not an accident that the academic director still comes from international relations because it gives that great uh, kind of dimension to the degree that other degrees don't have. Yeah, absolutely. And it also speaks to the the essence of the alliance between NYU, HSC and and LSE. We all bring very distinctive social science perspectives to Mm -hmm. the table. And that's what makes TRIUM so unique. I I agree. 
Okay, well, I'm going to jump into this. I mean, you are my kind of go-to person whenever I have questions about kind of international climate policy. And I can't think of a more kind of timely topic these days. And as part of the preparation for the podcast, I was reading your 2019 article called The Unavoidability of Justice and Order in International Climate Politics from Kyoto to Paris and Beyond. Really great article. In there, you sketch a trend away from kind of normative-based approaches to more pluralist and decentralized ones. Um, and I, I kind of took this to be kind of a kind of a move away from concerns about distributive justice driving these agreements to one about focusing on, look, we're all in this together, kind of a common fate argument. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you mean by that and why you think it's important. The title of the article, I should explain, is a bit complicated, but it, it echoes an article written by a, a justice theorist, a normative theorist called Henry Shu, and his article was called The Unavoidability of Justice in Climate Politics. And so I've simply added the word and order ah. to bring out this dimension that, yes, while it is important to think about global justice when we talk about climate politics, we also need to think about the order, the international order in which we seek to realize justice. And so what I try to do in the article is bring together normative theory and international relations theory. And while Henry Shu, the, the famous Oxford-based theorist, is very much about the ethical ambition in climate policy, about what ought to happen, the international relations discipline, my discipline, is very much about, well, what is possible in international relations, mm. not what ought to happen. It's about the what is, not the what ought to happen. And so what I wanted to do in this article is to balance his very normative perspective, where he argues about uh, why it is unfair for the North to have consumed so much of the global environmental goods, such as a clean atmosphere and fossil fuels, and why it is so unjust to the global South that they have not had that developmental experience. They have not been able to burn as many fossil fuels to develop, and they're now suffering most of the consequences of climate change. They're most exposed to global warming. And so his argument is a very strong one, which says the North now has to make up for those past injustices. And I try to say, yes, that's right. We need that justice dimension, but we also need to realize it in a world that's imperfect. Anarchy, international anarchy prevails. Anarchy in this case means not so much chaos, but simply the absence of a world government that can implement those justice claims. And we need to be therefore more realistic about what's possible. And so in the article, I tried to balance those two perspectives, bring them together and see what has been done in the international climate negotiations and to what extent we've been able to reach a kind of compromise around these justice claims. I mean, I, I really like this distinction between the normative approach and a kind of more almost kind of re realist in the, in the sense of international relations. So as I understand it, you think of the international order, not you, but international relations writ large kind of thinks about the international order as anarchic, as you say. So you have state actors. There's no overarching world governance or no kind of enforcement mechanism necessarily on agreements. And so the argument is that you look for institutions, the institutions at the international order are kind of constrained by they have to be aligned with the self-interest of the actors. And if they aren't aligned with the perceived self-interest of the actors, because there's no enforcement mechanism, essentially they don't work. So it's a kind of really non-binding or binding factor in the sense of international relations agreements. Is that kind of a, a way of looking at it, yeah. consistent? Yeah, precisely. It's a very good way of putting the, the central dilemma in international relations. Um, and we see that dilemma played out in the history of international climate politics, because if we if we look at the, the first climate treaties that were negotiated in the early 1990s, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, abbreviated to UNFCCC, it's a bit of a mouthful, but um, I'm going to use it in this podcast. The UNFCCC, the treaty, the first treaty on climate change, negotiated at the Rio Summit, the World Summit on Sustainable Development in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. And that was a very normatively infused uh, treaty. It had a strong justice dimension because it argued that essentially we have common but also differentiated responsibilities. CBD are common but differentiated responsibilities. And that meant that while everyone is responsible to look after the planet and ensure that the climate remains stable, northern industrialized countries had to take 
action first. They had to cut down emissions because they've been creating the problem in the past. And so the perspective was in the 1990s, the developing world should not do anything about this until the North had acted first. And when the second treaty was negotiated, the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, this then became legally binding in terms of the emission reduction targets that were agreed. That completely exempted developing countries from taking any mitigation measures. Quite rightly so, because until then, most developing countries still hadn't really emitted much in historical mm. terms. And so the, both these treaties had a very strong justice dimension. And that justice dimension was expressed in this strong version of differentiation. The North had to act first, the North had to cut down emissions, and when that had happened, there was a, a implementation phase, and only then would the Kyoto Protocol be renegotiated in the hope that developing countries would then also come on board and take their own measures. But the problem was, while that was a very normatively ambitious treaty, it didn't win the approval of all the key players. So the United States was the first major economy to opt out and simply say, we're not going to ratify this treaty. We think it's imbalanced. Mm. The European Union, to its credit, uh, signed on and was willing to work by it. But the US and then later on other countries peeled away from it. Japan, Canada, Australia, they all went lukewarm about this compromise. And they all felt that, particularly as countries like China and India were rising, uh, both as economic powers, but also as, as major emitters, that they had to be inside the tent. They had to do something as well. And so, so that very strong normative ambition couldn't be implemented because a lot of people, a lot of major economies were resentful about this kind of justice deal. And that led to the unraveling of the Kyoto Compromise. And that's why I would argue we needed a different kind of agreement. Uh, the Paris Agreement, we'll come to talk about that in a moment. But that, that was the beginning of the end of the old approach. And that's why I think justice needs to be balanced with order, the need to get all the major players, the great powers on board. Well, it's interesting because in some ways, I mean, you mentioned it at that point, the developing economies to the extent that there was a recognized danger, you could just ignore them. So you could you could wrap it in a normative argument, but because they weren't kind of contributing to the problem in any real way, you really, and this is from a maybe a realpolitik point of view, you didn't need them. So it, you could make all kinds of promises to them, but because they weren't important, it didn't matter. And it was really kind of an, uh, an agreement only amongst the big emitters. But once the other developing economies started, and, and you could see that in the future that we continue to rise as emitters, then it became unacceptable politically because then if the normative argument had been binding, at that point, it shouldn't have mattered whether the developing countries were rising in emissions because that was fine because we had gone through this already. We'd caused the damage, we meaning the global north. But the fact that once they started emitting, it all fell apart. Perhaps, you know, as you said, it maybe shows the weakness of that normative wrapping around this agreement. I agree entirely. Um, it was a, perhaps at the time, a generous gesture by the North in 1992. Remember, this was the end of the Cold War. We had just overcome that deep division in international relations. And everyone felt, as, as George Bush Sr. said, we are creating a new world order. And, and mm. this would be one based on multilateralism, on a better deal between the North and the South, between East and West. We would all come together and create global governance to solve global problems. And I think climate change wasn't yet as politically salient as it is today. It was still yeah. seen as a more marginal issue. And the Northern countries perhaps felt they could afford to be generous and, and, and take on that uh, historical burden of reducing emissions. Mm. But that over time, uh, the burden grew a little bit more burdensome for some, particularly in the United States. And as the emissions profile changed, as more and more developing countries developed economically, China and India were increasingly seen as an economic rival in the West rather than uh, uh, poor countries that were merely catching up. Uh, the costs of taking climate action weighed more heavily on some of these countries. And that's when their initial normative concession seemed to be misguided. Mm. But we should remember, looking at this from a developing country perspective, most developing countries never felt that the North delivered on its promises. Sure. And so, so many developing countries held out in the Kyoto Protocol and in the post-Kyoto Protocol negotiations 
they said, you haven't yet delivered. You haven't yet cut down emissions as much as you had promised, you in the North. You haven't quite delivered the promises of climate aid and finance for developing countries. So why should we take on an extra burden? Hmm. And, and for that reason, the, the justice dimension has never gone away in the negotiations. The North did a good talk in, in Rio in 1992, uh, but never delivered on those promises. And so the South held out. And we got into this stalemate as we tried to renegotiate Kyoto. And that's where we needed to find a different basis on which to agree climate action at yeah. the global level. And again, I'd love to hear your opinion on this because it's kind of my, like normally, my kind of semi-informed um, approach to these kind of things. But I, I kind of try to think of the dichotomy going around kind of a normative approach, like we said, you know, the North causes problem. It's having disastrous effects on the South. The North, therefore, has this moral obligation to not only limit their own emissions, but to compensate, right? This is the compensatory part for the existing damage that's being done and help to pay now, the talk is to help to pay for this transformation to more sustainable practices. So, so not allowing them necessarily to go through the fossil fuel burning phase of development, but to help them skip that so-called step in the development process, but they need to be paid for that and we should pay for it, we meaning the North, because we messed up everything to begin with. And then a different approach, I kind of think is this, kind of more self-interested one. And essentially it goes something like this, you know, we're all facing this existential threat. So we're all driving a car off the cliff, right? But the car has lots of different steering wheels. And even if we don't, if it's not existential, it's, it, it'd be extremely expensive to try to compensate for all these uh, environmental, uh, you know, cause we get all of these free goods from the environment now, which we would have to start to try to somehow pay for to the extent that we could. The North alone can't stop this from happening, right? Our steering wheel won't move the car from going off the cliff. The rest of the world has to all kind of turn as well. And it puts them in a position of power that they never had before. Yeah. And, yeah. and they can say, look, we aren't turning. You, you give us what we want, which you're, and, and they can put it in the normative argument because, you know, after all, you, you caused this, uh -huh. you built this car, you put it on the way to the yeah. cliff. And unless you pay to do it, then, then look, if you don't pay, we're all doomed. And it's not our fault because you're still doing it. But here's where it's kind of the self-interested part. If the North does pay, it preserves itself. So it's kind of in its self-interest to do that. But what I think is also kind of interesting, I've been thinking about this, is it reestablishes some sort of sovereignty that now is, doesn't exist. So if you think that we're all kind of going off this cliff together, there's, again, my simple way of thinking of it in the story, if we're all going yeah, off the cliff together, we're, we're out of control, right? We, we don't have any control in our, in our destiny, but if we pay them off, then we reestablish control of our own destiny. And that seems to me to be, I don't know, does it make sense to the dichotomize it like approach. this? Yeah. It's okay. almost a real politic approach. No, I agree. It's an interesting way of framing it. A game theorist might say this is a game of chicken where the two cars are driving, perhaps not towards the cliff, but towards each other. And neither one is willing to budge. Industrialized countries are not willing to help the South to move towards a low carbon developmental path. And the South, that's now becoming the biggest uh, emitter, is China is the world's biggest emitter. Many emerging markets are now uh, the major growth sources of emissions. They don't want to slow down their developmental uh, efforts. And yeah, we're headed towards mutual annihilation. That's not a sustainable way. And so we need to find a way out of this by both jointly acting on this. And that's the analogy you drew about sort of facing uh, the cliff and we're approaching it rapidly. In that scenario, I agree with you entirely. Sovereignty is a bit of a weird ambition to have because if you're facing an existential threat, then you need to act together. There's no point in claiming your sovereignty against others because you're both going to go on. Mm. The, an extreme analogy might be the world having to come together because it's facing an existential threat from outside, from space. Let's say an asteroid is about to hit the Earth. Surely we would all want to come together. We would bury our differences. All geopolitical and geoeconomic differences would be irrelevant because we all need to survive in this threat. So we need to join forces and fight that threat. And a lot of people have compared climate change to this kind of common fate issue that the world faces. Unless we act together, uh, overcome our differences, we are not going to survive. 
and therefore any self-interested action is short-sighted because it just means ruin later. Uh, the problem with climate change is it's a much less immediate, much less directly impactful event. It's a slow-burning issue. Yes, we, we already know that some of the impacts are hitting us today. Uh, wildfires in Australia and, and California, hurricanes that are hitting the south of the United States ever harder, typhoons in East Asia ever more prevalent and, and frequent, uh, droughts in India and, and Sub-Saharan Africa and so on. These uh, climate-induced extreme weathers and, and natural catastrophes, they're multiplying, they're becoming more extreme. We know that, but it's still a, a slowly unfolding crisis. And that's really difficult in terms of getting collective action going. Mm. It's, it's no, just playing out too slowly. It's the perfect storm, so to speak, of, you know, it's like the most difficult problem for the global system to handle. But what gives me a little bit of hope, maybe, is this idea of, in a sense, as a common fate thing, it's kind of about, about pooled destiny and pooled sovereignty, and we pool our sovereignty together in order to, to try to avoid uh, the disaster. Perhaps a different way of thinking of it, it's about reestablishing sovereignty, Right. Let's say I'm suffering from wildfires in California. I know that U.S. emissions could go to zero and I could still suffer wildfires in California because of what's happening all over the rest of the world. I, I'm in effect have no sovereignty over this anymore. I, it doesn't stop at my border. I can't regulate it. I can't, can't even pursue a kind of radical isolation policy and, and shield myself from it. So in a sense, that really robs me from any sense of control over my own destiny. But if I decide as a rich country or a club of rich countries, that we're going to get a hold of this, that in a sense re-establishes a level of sovereignty that's lost at this point. So mm. it could be in a kind of empowering yeah. for individual states an empowering thing to grasp back um, yeah. lost sovereignty. And, and yeah. maybe this is a lever that could be pulled. I, I just don't know. I mean, if we think of COVID right now, the COVID-19, you know, this is not a meteor uh, hitting us from outside, but one could think of it as kind of exogenous shock. If we see the global response to this, are you heartened by a more immediate threat? Is this a good news for us or a bad news if we think of how the world has responded to this and try to think of climate change in the same way? My sense is that the pandemic and climate change share a lot of interesting characteristics and also the, the responses to both of these problems. Because in both cases, we see states at a point where they have to decide whether to collaborate more and work together more in order to beat the common threat or resort to more nationalist responses, more autarky in their responses, sort of closing in in a defensive posture. And both are, in some sense, rational strategies in both cases, the pandemic and climate change, though if we look at the planetary interest and global society's interest, only a cooperative stance would work. Uh, in the pandemic, we know because of uh, the viruses moving freely around the world, because of the intensely globalized economy, people and goods moving around the world, it's impossible to shut your borders. You would have to be a, a kind of North Korea, that level of autarky to really shut yourself off from the global economy. So mm. we can never beat the virus by simply closing down our borders. And for that reason, we are reliant on some form of collaboration. Finding the vaccine is a collaborative effort, uh, but we also depend on other countries' efforts to vaccinate populations so that we can contain the virus. So there's no question that a cooperative approach would work better. But the instinct has been in many countries, shut down borders, try and develop your own responses. There's a kind of a vaccine nationalism, at least rhetorically emerging, where countries pride themselves of, yeah, we beat the others, when in fact, in reality, we've all been working together behind the scenes. Mm. There's, there's therefore a risk that something similar happens in climate change, that as the environmental impacts of climate change become ever more potent and dangerous, but our efforts to reduce emissions are failing, we might simply see countries switching to a defensive nationalist posture where we only look after our flood defenses, our capability to fight wildfires, where we simply focus on adaptation rather than mitigation. So, so limiting the environmental impacts rather than fighting the causes of the problem. And that would, be, that would be a shame because then we would have missed that opportunity where we can still change the course of future climate change.
because we still have it within our grasp to bring down future temperature rises to a level where the most dangerous consequences are avoided. And of course, economically mad to do this because it's much, much cheaper to prevent happening than to adapt to the change, right? And in that sense, you see the real power of the social dilemma here, because if you looked at it at a collective level, the cost of mitigation is, even for a country, is just so great. If you took a fraction of that and said, we're going to, I don't know, we will offer all countries uh, in Southeast Asia to replace all of their coal factories with something else, some other cleaner technology for free, and we'll pay for all the transition and all future revenues from these uh, factories, we will give to whoever we need to give them to. That would still be a minuscule fraction of what it would cost to adapt to a destroyed environment. And so, yeah. And it's I, becoming cheaper today because the cost of renewable energy are falling rapidly mm. in energy auction uh, systems in, in Europe and in North America. Solar and wind energy is now being sold below the cost of gas and coal-fired energy. So there is a very promising shift happening in global markets towards low-carbon technologies where the costs of taking action have fallen rapidly in the last five to ten years, which I would argue is also behind the Paris Agreement and why we managed to get agreement in 2015. Mm. Uh, governments are just no longer seeing this as such an extraordinary cost. They're much more confident that they can bring emissions down, initiate, and then see through the transition to a low-carbon economy and actually reap benefits from it. Yeah. It's in interesting to, to note that the first really convincing economic study of the costs of climate action was done back in 2006 by Nicholas Stern, Lord Stern, who's, who's a colleague of mine at the LSE. He's the chair of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change, and he produced that report at the time when we were sort of at a critical juncture in the climate debate. Um, and he argued very convincingly and forcefully that uh, while there is a cost involved in, in reducing emissions, in the long run, that pays off handsomely that actually we would see a decline in global GDP by at least 5% if we didn't take action and possibly more. And that therefore the, the costs of taking action now are outweighed by the future costs of no action. And so that I think changed a lot of government's perceptions. And that's why we see now a broad consensus around the need to take uh, climate action. The, the Paris Agreement wouldn't have happened without that shift in perspective. Yeah. And it all depends on government's perceived discount rates, I suppose, right? How long, how long your uh, future horizon is. If it's to that's the next a, election, then yeah. maybe not so much. That's a tricky issue. But that's, again, where normative perspectives come in. How much uh, value do we attach to uh, future generations' livelihoods? How much of the planet do we want to leave behind that's intact for future generations to mm. enjoy? How are we merely guardians, trustees of the planet that we inherit, or is it ours that we can use and destroy at our will? That's a fundamental normative question, and that affects yeah. discount rates, that affects how we value future costs. Sure. I would argue that this is this kind of narrative that we tell ourselves. So where you use normative, I would say narrative, right? So, um, and, that, and that affects all the other economics. So it could be that the the kind of underlying functional role of creating a narrative that we would share some sort of intersubjective narrative understanding of what it means to be a responsible citizen. The functional role could be to eliminate a economically inefficient system. If we, for example, you know, sometimes I think of slavery, slavery economically was becoming less and less of a economically viable institution, but people didn't argue we should end slavery because it was no longer economically efficient. People argued a normative argument saying this is horrendous. This is just not acceptable, but it's hard to see whether such a narrative have had resonance if it was still vastly economically efficient to run large scale human enslavement. I agree entirely. There's a certain political economy to all these normative innovations in, in human history. Mm. Uh, there's a long-standing religious and humanist argument against slavery that goes back centuries, but it only became possible to, to gather 
a big movement behind this cause when when the economic rationale for slavery disappeared. And I think something similar is happening with climate change. One could argue that um, in future generations, it will be morally repugnant, unacceptable to burn coal and other fossil fuels. But at the moment, we still rely on it. So yeah. we still think it is morally acceptable to do so. It may well be that in the future, this is no longer acceptable. But by that time, I suspect the costs of renewable energy, green energy, will have fallen to such an extent that we can switch over without harming also the growth prospects of poorer societies. And yeah. that is indeed what's currently happening. That's why we're seeing that shift. Yeah. I mean, the power of those stories to change the trajectory of uh, the future is, is what gives me hope. But it also makes me slightly frightened, to tell the truth, because in the slavery case, for example, in America, if you were in the North, you could say, well, slavery is something else does. It's these morally reprehensible Southerners that do these horrible things. And we're in a war to stop these people doing this, or at least a large proportion said this. But in a sense, if we say that the morally repugnant thing is to consume power from coal or to drive our petrol or diesel cars, then we all kind of have blood on our hands. And it takes a big psychological change to say, yes, what I am doing, what I have done, a big part of my kind of culture has been morally dubious. And it seems to me when that happens, people react very badly because it requires them to say, I'm not the good guy in this story. I'm the slave owner in this story. I'm not the person freeing the slaves. While the potential power of that narrative to change our future is huge, it also requires a kind of reckoning with our own behavior that, that I think is very difficult. I don't know. Do you agree? I agree entirely. And we have to be very careful here when we talk about moral duties. Um, so far, we've only looked at moral duties that uh, apply to societies, uh, larger entities. Of course, a societal moral duty then translates in, into an individual moral duty. But it's really difficult for any of us uh, individuals to take the right course of action in a context in which we have very few choices. Mm. Right? We have to heat our homes, we have to get to work, we have to get our children to school. Um, if I have to rely on fossil fuels to heat my home and I have no alternative, it's really difficult to take the right course of action. Mm. If I can't get to work because there's no public transport which runs on clean energy, then what choice do I have? I have to feed my family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I think we shouldn't burden the individual with that sort of historic responsibility to do the right thing yeah. when all the economic and political structures conspire against exactly. choices. So that's very important. And the other thing is, I think we should also be careful about sort of environmentalist do-gooders who make certain choices in their lives. I won't travel anymore. I won't eat meat. These are all good choices, but we make a lot of choices that fall in between the white and the black spectrum. They're sort of in the middle, gray areas. And, and not everyone has the ability to always get those choices right. We exactly. have to make compromises. So I'm very careful about not putting the blame for any environmental harm that we're doing at the door of individuals and their individual choices. We need to get everyone behind the cause, businesses, uh, business leaders themselves, but also individuals. And for that, uh, playing this moral blame game isn't going to work. Well, and we see it, I mean, this is, particularly if it comes from educated urban rich elites, telling people, you know, this is part of the fuel that gives rise to right-wing populism, et cetera, et cetera, or left-wing populism, whatever the populism brand you, you're looking at. But uh, I, I agree. I think we have to be very careful. One thing that might be interesting to talk a little bit about is, you know, we have a new administration coming in in the U.S. The incoming Biden administration has signaled all kinds of amazing things about climate change. They're pursuing a very aggressive climate change policy agenda. I think both domestically and foreign policy. Now we'll see whether anything really happens. But are you optimistic about a real change with the new administration? Oh, it's definitely good news um, because the contrast couldn't be sharper between what 
the Trump administration did on climate change and what Biden has promised now. Trump has been on the record for doubting climate change. He called it a, a hoax against all scientific evidence. He undermined the status of science within the administration. They've, they've marginalized and pushed out people within the administration that spoke truth to power about climate change. He's undermined multilateralism, walking away from the Paris Agreement. That was all very damaging, both to the sort of the, the rationality in the debate, but also to the cooperative framework that we've built up. And Biden has made it clear that he wants to make climate change a priority for his administration. He has already announced that the US will return to the Paris Agreement, which is good news. And he's put in place a pledge to start the decarbonization of the US economy, which has been underway already, but he wants to accelerate that. So uh, it's, it's widely noted that he's promised uh, to make electricity generation carbon free by 2035. That's by US standards, that's certainly an ambitious target. And he's promised a net zero target for the whole economy by 2050, which brings the US in line with other economies, European mm. economies and other major industrialized countries, which is exactly where we need to go. So that's all very promising. And perhaps one less widely noted promise he's made, he's going to uh, fulfill the climate finance pledges that the US have made in the past for developing countries. So that's really good news because Trump had really walked away from that pledge and developing countries did not take kindly to that. So, so Biden is going to repair that. It's going to do a lot of good for the, the global climate regime because we need that support flowing to poorer countries, but also mm. it's going to restore American uh, status and, and, and leadership in, in the climate regime. Well, I hope so. I mean, there's a couple things that I think is interesting here and love to hear your kind of reflection on them. Biden isn't selling this as a, I mean, there's some moral normative speech or speak around it. But if you listen to his speeches on this, it's all about jobs, bringing industrial jobs back to America. It's about uh, economic growth, good jobs for people. For the narrative he's putting around this is not a stewardship narrative. It's not a, we have a obligation for future generations, et cetera. It's not a kind of Carter-esque argument uh, for those old enough to remember Carter. Um, but it's, it's much more of a kind of nationalistic, this is a way, by American, American jobs. It's a kind of reindustrialization almost policy. And I think that that's, again, back to our theme at the beginning between, you know, what's a more powerful narrative, this kind of, economic self-interest narrative versus a, a stewardship narrative. That, that seems to me how he's selling it. Yeah, no, I agree with you. But I would always caution against a sort of a framing which puts these two narratives in opposition. I think they have to work together. They, they, they are very closely entwined. Um, I think what Biden projects is both the moral ambition for the US to take a leadership role in this area, globally and domestically, and to make it work for ordinary citizens. It mm. has to be a case for both of these ambitions. Otherwise, without the ambition, we can't sustain the effort in the long run, but without making it work for the working class, for those that are potentially a threat from decarbonization. Yeah. Uh, without that, we can't make it work in a domestic context. And lots of different countries have come up with different kind of mixtures of these elements of the climate narrative. Yeah. If we look at China, for example, there, the Chinese government in some ways is perhaps ahead of its own population in making these international climate pledges. But they frame it much more in the context of creating, for example, clean air, a clean environment mm. in China. They mm. want to get rid of coal primarily because it's, it's seen as a heavily polluting form of energy production that's harming people's life chances. Um, it's cutting their health and their prosperity. Uh, in other parts of the world too, there are different stories about energy independence, uh, which, which are being met by climate targets. So, so that's the reality of, of climate narratives. But we need these locally rooted climate narratives so that uh, people see that their future depends on success in that area. Yeah their individual futures. I mean, uh, one of the things that I worry about on, as far as the Biden is, I'm giving you all my worries. It's like, I'm, I, this is like a, a, some sort of a confessional, sorry about that. But one of the damages I would argue that the Trump administration did, and this is being agnostic as far as 
the value of his policies or the, the value of his approach. But he pulled the US out of a lot of obligations that they had made to other countries and, and to other collectives and other multilateral institutions. And now Biden's going to come back and re-enter them. How much do you think countries will say, well, wait a minute, I, I don't want to do this because if Biden is a one-term president or if, you know, le you know, let's say Trump wins in 2024, why would I possibly, you know, we're, we're back to like, um, you know, you talked about the phased development of the Kyoto thing. You know, you move first and then when you do that, then I'll, but why would I possibly I kind of believe that the U.S., if I got a commitment from the Biden administration, it's commitment from the U.S. now. This is a thing that's really dangerous, I think, at this time. Do you think people will believe it now? You touched on a really uh, important point here, because the U.S. has a checkered history of, of global environmental leadership. Um, if we go back to the origins of the international environmental agenda, the first U.N. conference happened in 1972 in Stockholm. The U.S. actually put that conference agenda up there. It, it argued for the conference. It wanted leadership. In those days, interesting enough, it was Nixon who thought by hmm. taking uh, environmental issues up, he could provide a counter-narrative to his own domestic problems at the time. But there was a bipartisan consensus behind taking environmental action. Uh, so in the early 70s, the US was in the lead. A lot of European countries we're not convinced that this is such an important agenda. Mm. And the U.S. was right out there. In the 1990s, at the time of the Rio summit, the U.S. for the first time took a back seat. This was George Bush Sr. who decided not, for example, to ratify the Convention on Biological Diversity, although the U.S. ratified the Climate Convention. And then Clinton re-engaged, negotiated the Kyoto Protocol, but he could never manage to get the Kyoto Protocol ratified in Congress. Mm. And his successor, George W. Bush, then withdrew the U.S. signature from the Kyoto Protocol, again withdrawing from multilateral cooperation. Uh, after that, Obama re-engaged, offered leadership, only to be followed by Trump. So we have a kind of a stop-go pattern in this. And I think you're right in pointing out that the world will be initially skeptical, or at least not put much trust in the long-term ability of the US to lead in that area. But in a way, a more positive spin would be to say, we don't actually need the US anymore as the mm. hegemonic leader in this field. First of all, the US is no longer the, the biggest emitter, China is now, and China under Xi has come out uh, with a strong commitment to leading on climate change. Okay, if we have time, we can now go into how credible that commitment is, because China is still the largest emitter and has been doing a lot of damage to the global climate in that area. But it's interesting to note that China is committed to the Paris Agreement and wants to also decarbonize its economy. Mm -hmm. So at least for the next four years, both the US and China can walk in lockstep and, and do a lot of good. Yeah. And a lot of other countries are now stepping up. It's a much more decentralized field of action and what the U.S. does, while it is important, is no longer as critically important as it used to be. And that might be a benefit from from stepping back a little bit with the Trump cause. I want to just pick up a little bit on China's emissions. Now, as you said, China is now the single largest emitter. How much of that relies on how we account for their emissions? I mean, much of the rest of the North has deindustrialized so they they've essentially moved production of the goods that they buy and they consume to other countries largely to let's say to china i'm struck by the fact whenever i go back to the us and i walk into a walmart it seems like a kind of outlet of china industrial policy and uh, you know kind of the kind of the retail wing of china inc if we were to incorporate the carbon to the consumer, would China still be the largest emitter? Uh, unfortunately, it would still be, just okay. because it is now the world's manufacturing hub. And there is enough domestic demand for Chinese manufactured goods to drive that sort of carbon-emitting machinery that China has built up. But you're absolutely right that uh, China, by having become the world's uh, dominant industrial power, has basically taken on a lot of the carbon burden for other countries, which has allowed countries in Europe, for example, to talk about how successfully they have reduced their emissions over the last few decades. 
but some, at least some of that success stories down to the fact that they've exported manufacturing industries to China, that they're now just importing those goods that mm. are emitting in other parts of the world. Yeah. That irony is not lost on leaders in, in the developing world who are yeah. being told you need to do more now, now that you're uh, much more engaged in global manufacturing. Um, they are very much arguing we should balance a focus on the emissions of uh, carbon from production with a focus on consumption-based yeah. emissions. Yeah. Which again, normatively seems to make sense to me. Absolutely, absolutely. There are various accounts of how much of that emissions burden is driven by traded goods and as mm. this expression, embedded emissions in traded goods. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen uh, figures that suggest that up to 10% of China's emissions are driven by those, those embedded emissions. Yeah, embedded emissions. And then, of course, it gets very complicated when you have complex supply chains where you have assembly places that yeah. put together parts from half a dozen, dozen different countries in one place and then export them to another place. It's, you know, how you exactly account for that, that becomes, exactly. becomes problematic. Exactly. That's kind of a nice transition to talk a little bit about businesses' roles. So we've been talking about, you know, states as state actors in this anarchic uh, kind of environment. Let's maybe talk about companies a little bit. And it's funny to me in that I think that there's two also kind of, they match the kind of approaches of this normative approach versus a self-interested approach. And again, in a simple way, I kind of think of things sometimes in pairs. And so in one sense, we get a lot of, in companies, what I think of as kind of bottom-up pressure to act in more environmentally sustainable ways. So companies are responding to like consumer demand. And I had a whole podcast with Tansi Whelan where we talked about companies responding to consumer demands for more environmentally and socially kind of friendly production methods and, and impacts. And you can kind of think bottom up as if politicians respond from voter demand, so to impose regulations on businesses to act in more sustainable ways. Or business leaders, maybe they anticipate regulatory change, so they kind of, quote, voluntarily adopt new practices, but it's kind of a form of risk management strategy, right? So they, they're ahead of the curve instead of being imposed on. And some, sometimes companies respond to their own employees, right? So their own employees can, have, can push them to adopt strategies that are more in tune with their own employees' kind of approaches to the world. But all those are, are companies responding in ways that, at least in a kind of EMBA format, we're familiar with, we can model those easily, right? Because we talk a lot about how companies respond to market demands and the environment in which they live in. But then there's this kind of other approach that you see sometimes where companies, leaders, or board members, or shareholders are kind of adopt a normative approach themselves. And they decide to alter their practices based on what they believe is the right thing. This is kind of an elite-driven, top-down approach, I think. This is the Davos meeting where they all decide this is what we're going to do, right? And this is absent government action. So companies start to act based on their leader's normative compass. And I just wondered, you know massively more about this than I do, but is that a useful way to divide up the kind of pressures on companies? It is um, in the sense that, as you outlined, there are multiple pressures working on companies. And you've outlined some of those, they're partly externally driven. Uh, society has certain demands on companies, regulators, governments have demands, employees. And then they're also internally driven by you know, how companies define their purpose, how they define, if we want to take that uh, term, moral ambition. Um, and I think we've seen a shift in the way in which companies think about these issues. Perhaps 10, 20 years ago, most companies saw climate change as a bit of a marginal issue, something that they perhaps reluctantly engaged in and only when there was external pressure. But now, as you say, when you go to Davos, if you go to any business conference around the world, you can't help but notice how many panels there are on what climate action companies are doing and what their responsibilities for the global planet and, and for the global environment. It almost seems as if there's been this normative shift that business leaders now see it as a given that they have to engage in these debates and make these pledges. Mm. And I... I think it's more an evolutionary trend than a kind of a big shift in approach. I think the okay. two are closely connected. And I think the latter 
that that sort of what you described as a top-down normative approach has grown out of the former. Okay. And the way I think about this is that few business decisions are taken as purely normative decisions or for right. any isolated ethical reason. Businesses are, first of all, not set up for that. Their primary purpose is to make uh, a profit, to reward the shareholders. Uh, but companies are also created to serve a certain purpose. They, they solve problems in society. They create products. They create services. The deal with this is that we in society can't fix in any other way. The company is a purpose-built institution in a sense. And so it's only natural that it responds to the shifting values in society and it gradually then incorporates these values and normative purposes that society creates. And we've gone through that process over the last 20 years where the environment and climate change was seen as a bit of a fringe issue that a lot of companies responded to by basically pushing it away and saying, I, I can't afford to engage with this agenda. You know, this is not core of my profit maximization purpose mm. that I'm pursuing. But as climate change has become a live issue in a lot of boardrooms, companies are now facing the problems of, of physical impacts of climate change, rising sea levels, uh, extreme weather patterns, dis disrupting supply chains, uh, and so on. They are waking up to the fact this is a, a reality, but one that, that's getting worse. But also more and more people are asking them, what are you doing about this? Uh, CEOs themselves are part of society. They're not living and, and acting in isolation. Their children ask them, Dad, Mom, what are you doing about this, right? We, we hear it's, it's, it's a major emergency. I want you to, to be accountable in this area. And so, so this kind of um, separation of normative aspects and external pressures, I think, is collapsing because companies are always part of this broader societal debate about what is the purpose of business and that purpose has always shifted and i think the realization that climate change is becoming one of the top societal priorities has sunk in and businesses have therefore responded to that there's a mixture of self-interest hmm. but also realization that it is the right thing to do that's no, the I, way i would frame yeah, it I, I like that idea that's kind of collapsing in on each other i mean i guess i get a little nervous if we rely on the kind of fragile belief structure of a certain few people at the top because they can change very quickly in whatever the mode is. But I like this idea that it's too simplistic to look at it as top down or bottom up because they both obviously it's their feedback loops. Um, so I guess the real question, maybe it's an open question we can't answer is, ought companies normatively, ought they be ahead of the people that work for them or the society in which they operate? Should they do extra legal things? Not extra legal meaning illegal, but things that they aren't compelled to do by regulatory regimes. You know, and that's a normative question. I don't, I'm not sure how to answer that, but it, you get to that question if we take your collapsing of those two things seriously. Mm. It's a critical issue, I think, for business leaders because when you make these choices about where do you want to position yourself in the climate debate, you could either just stay on trend with where regulations are, or you could say, I'm going to stake out a leadership position. Mm. I'm going to go out there and say, we are, we've taken this seriously and we want to do more than is required of us. So yeah. it's this kind of beyond compliance mentality, That's right. which is uh, seeping in. That's a really difficult one. And I think it, it'll depend on the sector that a company is in, what, the competition is up to whether taking that step towards a more ambitious position actually gets you a, a competitive advantage yeah. or whether it, it, it potentially harms you and therefore undercuts your position. Um, take, for example, oil companies, BP in the 1990s, tried to reposition itself. This was under the leadership of John Brown as a company that is moving beyond petroleum. They even went as far as using that new name for themselves. Yeah. BP beyond petroleum and they use this as part of a advertising campaign and the PR campaign to show that they've got the message and they want to be the first oil company to move beyond petroleum. The difficulty was none of their competitors apart perhaps from Shell wanted to go along in that march towards a greener future but also it was really they found that it was really difficult to move away from oil towards uh, wind and solar power because the cost structure was very different in the 1990s. Solar and wind was still massively more expensive than oil 
and they couldn't make it work from a commercial perspective. They well, pulled back from that. Yeah, commercially and I've worked with several independent oil companies and what they'll say as well is there's a the finance part, but our people don't know how to do it. I mean, if you're full of petroleum engineers and you yeah. say, now we want you to do wind farms, that's a different skill set, right? Yeah. And they don't have any competitive advantage of already existing people in those fields. So, yeah. so here's, a, here's a question for you. Um, let's think about a little bit closer to home, EMBAs, MBAs, Trium. Should we be focusing on beyond compliance? I mean, as I said, I think we're right to focus on all the kind of normal business school topics, you know, responding to consumer demand, a competitive advantage for staking out some sort of uh, leadership position, um, responding to retaining and attracting talent, et cetera. All those can kind of be folded in very easily to traditional business school topics, EMBA topics. But this kind of idea of perhaps staking out a normative beyond compliance position unless you justify it in, this is really an economic self-interest for you to do this, then it, for me, it wow. stops being kind of a normative thing. First of all, do you think we teach enough on the future impact of global environmental politics and policy? And if we do or don't, do we focus on the right thing? Mm. Oh, tricky question. Um, let me answer it by perhaps telling the story of how we introduced climate change as a topic in Trine. That might a clue as to how I think about this. Okay. So I started teaching the climate change course, Business Implications of Climate Change, as it's known, uh, in around 2008 or nine, And it's been running ever since. And uh, as I remember from the days when I introduced the course, we were, I suspect, the first global EMBA course to make climate change a proper subject of instruction as part of the EMBA curriculum. There may have been one or two others, but in those days, it was still a very marginal issue in business school teaching. And I got a lot of pushback from the students at really? the start who said to me, you know, why do we do this? This is not core business concern. Uh, we should be looking at other issues. This is a bit of a fringe issue. And I persisted. And I should add, I got some encouragement from other students who often in the coffee break said to me, oh, I'm so glad we're doing this because we think this is the future. This is where a lot of business debates will go and this is where business education should go. And so Trime was, I thought, very entrepreneurial and risk-taking, but also taking a leadership position on this. The Trime team at the time felt this is where we need to go. This is really important because ultimately we're not living in a norm-free environment where we mm. teach subjects to do with business strategy and, and accounting and finance, we are part of society. We have a responsibility towards business and society. And that includes all teachers and that includes business schools. And we need to teach business leadership from a perspective of, of what society demands of future business leaders. And, and as we've learned with climate change, it's also the only way to make business leadership sustainable and durable. It would be a very short-sighted view to say, we are not going to deal with challenges that, that are coming our way just because in the here and now over a one-year perspective, they don't pay off. We need to also train business leaders to think about the long-term, the disruptive changes that are happening. And as we saw with the pandemic, they can happen at any point and they can have a major impact on even short-term business calculations. We need to prepare business leaders to think big, to think long-term and to look at the broader horizon that emerges. So I think we should always be open to integrating new topics, new global challenges that will come to shape the business landscape in the future. But yeah, you're right. It sometimes takes a bit of uh, risk-taking and, and leadership among the business schools themselves. And I think, uh, to come back to your initial question, we're not doing enough of that, but I think we should be doing more. Mm. And always remember, I, I really love that uh, phrase that you use, we, we aren't in a norm-free environment. It's so easy to say, well, I don't have to deal with normative issues because I teach finance or I don't have to deal with normative issues because I teach whatever. As you said, we're all part of society and that is part of being a member of the society. And by pretending to have a normative free position, it is taking a normative position. Yeah, yeah. And just to carry on with the story that I started out. So when I teach climate change now on Trime, the conversation has changed quite dramatically. So we now look, for example, at the financial risks that climate change 
presents to businesses. The idea, for example, of stranded assets that businesses might hold. Stranded assets, the idea is simply put uh, that, for example, uh, oil reserves that oil companies book that underpin their market value, they may become stranded, they may become unusable in the future because we just can't keep burning that much oil. And therefore this creates financial risk for companies. So, so nowadays, this is common, uh, commonplace logic that we apply and we go through those various risks that companies face. And actually on Trime, uh, we've seen that, that a lot of uh, students are now going in that direction with their capstone projects, yeah. renewable energy projects, um, agricultural projects that are all about anticipating future climate change and making agriculture climate resilient. Uh, there are a lot of new business ideas coming up that are not just thinking about these issues as risks or threats, but as business opportunities. Hmm. That sea change is so fundamental that I think there's no going back. That's great being part of it, even a small piece. I mean, and it bridges me a little bit. I mean, often on this podcast, we're talking about someone's new book. Well, in, in this case, uh, we get a preview because you have a book ah. coming out. I think it's going to be published in July 21. Is that right? right? From, from Cambridge right. University Press. Can you tell us the title, any kind of sneak previews, and when could we start pre-ordering them? Oh, I'm so glad you, you allow for a commercial break in this podcast. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, the, the book's called Environmentalism and Global International Society. It's a bit of a perhaps uh, not so catchy title. It's a rather academic book, but um, I think it does what it says on the tin because I trace the long history of environmental norms in international relations. I wanted in this book to go back right to the beginning of that debate. And interestingly enough, although the first UN environmental conference took place in 1972, there's a much longer history of environmental campaigners and scientists trying to get the environment onto the international agenda. And so I traced that history. I, I went right back to the 19th century. First debates happened in the late 19th century in the run-up to the First World War in, in the mm. 1910s. Uh, and they failed because international society, the society of states, refused to take on that responsibility for the global environment. That happened during the League of Nations years in, in the 1920s and 30s. And even when the United Nations was created in 1945, at the famous San Francisco conference, the UN didn't accept an environmental responsibility. It was left as a marginal issue. It was integrated into the uh, UNESCO organization. So, so there are these repeated failures to make states take on that global responsibility. And, and in the book, I try to explain why it didn't happen back then and what made it possible for that green revolution in international relations to happen in the 1970s. And I then carry on in the book to, to see how far we've come in that sort of greening process. Sounds so fascinating. It, it's, it's a big sort of uh, history take on the rise of environmentalism in the international context. And unfortunately, it's not yet available for pre-order, I'm sorry to say. So, well, as soon um, as it is, I know I'm going to get my copy because that sounds really um, interesting to wonderful. me. And, and one of the things I, I love about being around people like yourself who are you know very serious scholars is the idea of not pretending that the world started in 2010, you know, or, or, you know, a few years ago, the idea of going back to see larger patterns and trying to explain the variability of why something didn't work in the past, but now works. That to me is a super valuable exercise. And I'm glad people like yourself spend long periods of time working on such projects. So people like me can read them very quickly and gather the knowledge. But uh, thank you for that. And I'm going to be super excited to read that once it comes out. So just to finish up, you know, I finish each podcast in this way, one book or film or TV show or podcast, fiction or nonfiction, something that you've consumed in some way in the last year, uh, which you'd recommend to our listeners. Oh, Gosh, um, well, thanks to the pandemic and having been locked up in, in my home here in, in London, I've read so many books that I would have loved to recommend. There isn't enough time, I guess, for everyone to read uh, so much. So I'm going to focus, since we've been talking about climate change, on one book that actually comes with a film. So you get two for one in this. And that's a book that was originally published in 2010, but has just been reissued in a new edition in March 2020. And that book is by Naomi Oreskes, a Harvard scientist, wonderful 
lady who's been doing great work around climate science and uh, also the sort of public engagement of scientists and how we talk about these issues. So she's a great communicator of scientific truth and, and the political reality. And her book is called Merchants of Doubt, how a handful of scientists obscure the truth on issues from tobacco, smoke to global warming. So the book came out in 2010, and in the book she traced the campaign by a small group of scientists funded by some dubious sources who simply tried to prevent society from taking action on tobacco and now on global warming. And she just documents that effort of, as we now call it, fake news or, uh, <laughs> or sort of distorting uh, the reality of science sowing doubt when there shouldn't be any doubts about the harmful effects of certain products and, and developments. And she's done a, a real service to society by sort of showing us how dangerous it is when, when these kind of fake campaigns go off, particularly important in the context of currently COVID and the vaccine debate, where mm. we have similar attempts being made by not very trustworthy sources to sow doubt about the scientific effort. But what's interesting is, if you don't want to read the book, she turned this into a documentary, which came out in 2014, which is a riveting documentary, where she shows a lot of these debates, going back to the tobacco debate. Um, and I, I show that to my students every year, and they love it. And it's mm. a wonderful documentary to, to enjoy, yeah, even on a long winter evening. What a great recommendation. I know that book. I read it some time ago. And... As you say, it's, it's really prescient to see how that methodology using to sow doubt has been used over and over again in lots of different fields um, and about how it's not convincing people about another position. It's convincing them that nothing is really sure. And that gives a permission structure to do the things you want to do anyway. Yeah. Um, so it's a great book, really great recommendation. Well, Robert, it's been a pleasure. The time zoomed by. I'm sorry to keep you a little bit longer than we had anticipated, but thank you very much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Matt. This was fantastic. I so enjoyed this. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.